All right, good morning, everybody. Can I have um, some of the people in this church who have the most faith, sometimes the biggest faith in here? You might be the smallest. Some of the kids, kids, do you want to come on up here? All right, we're going to have a little children's message. So usually Pastor Jim's up here doing it, but I'm going to do it for you. So come on up. Can you guys uh, encourage them, give them a little round of applause while they come up? Yeah, that's brave. I mean, most of us adults don't even like getting up in front of this many people. So it's pretty cool. All right, kids. Hey, does anybody know what this is? Who's good at hula hooping in here? Henry, do you want to do you want to show us how it works? You don't? Okay, me neither because I can't do it anymore. Um, so uh, let's see. How about this? Can you guys line up in a single file line over there? Go over by the go over by the wall. Come on over here. Actually, line up in a single file line right here, and then everybody else behind them to the wall. There we go. Facing me, Olivia. Good job. Perfect. All right. Does anyone, has anyone ever walked through one of these before? Do you guys think you can fit? Okay, we're going to try. We're going to see if we can get everybody through this hula hoop, all right? Okay, ready? Go. Keep going. Keep going. Nice move, all right? The tuck and roll. A lot of different styles I'm seeing here. All right. Whoa. <laughs> all right. Was that easy, you guys? Okay, okay. All right, that's pretty good. All right, we're going to do another one. I think you guys can do better than that. Let's see. All right. Does anyone know what this is? All right. So line up in a single file line again. Let me see if I can stretch it a little bit. Oh, I can stretch it like this big. Okay, you guys ready? We're going to go. We're all going to go through this hair tie. Are you ready? Do you guys think we can do this? Okay, Marcus, you're going to try first. You can't? Why not? Is it, is it going to work? Why not? Are you telling me this is impossible? Is there anyone in here who can fit through this? <laughs> I know some of you would try. Okay, okay. What about, I got something else. Olivia, you want to hold my microphone real quick? <laughs> Don't poke me with that needle. All right. Is my mic on? I'm sorry. Okay. So this is a needle, right? Has anyone ever seen a sewing needle before? Yeah. Do you guys know that there's a little hole in that thing? There's a tiny little hole in there. Now, do you think you could get through that little hole? No, I have a question for you. Do you think, who knows what a camel is? You guys seen a camel before? Yeah, on the desert? All right. Do you think you can get a camel through that little hole? No. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, Let's see. There's a cool story in Mark, and uh, I want to read to you really quick what Jesus says about that. All right. So Jesus says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, like the one I just showed you. It's easier for a camel to go through that than for a rich person to enter <coughs> the kingdom of God. And then the disciples were ex exceedingly amazed. And they said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Remember that song we just sang? Who set the stars into the sky? That's right. Do you think anything is impossible for God? Even our salvation? That's right. So 
We have to trust him, put our full faith and trust in him, and it's possible only with God and his sovereign grace, okay? So let me pray for you guys. You guys want to get in a big little circle right here? Let's get in a circle. Come on in. Come on in. I'll get down with you. Okay, ready? Everyone hold hands. We never do this, right? Don't be weirded out. It's okay. All right, let's pray. Come on in. There we go. Come on. Come on in. We got space for you over here. All right. You guys ready? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, this great church and our parents and our brothers and sisters and all of us just being friends here and getting to come to sing songs to you and worship you. Lord Jesus, we know that everything is possible only through you and your power and your love and your grace for us. So I pray that we would set aside anything that gets in our way of a relationship with you, Lord. Um, In Jesus Christ's mighty name, amen. All right, kids. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Ryan. That was awesome. And thanks, Micah, to uh, another great uh, time with wor- uh, worshiping with you all. And, and Rush, great to see you. Where are you, Rush? There you are. Great to see you back, brother. Great to see you back. Yeah. For those, yeah. I tell you what, if you haven't gone online, you got to go online. Fishers of Men, you guys are still on there. A- iTunes, some of the best praise music uh, that you're going to hear. Great to have you back from Hawaii. Ashley. Great job out there, good job first time out there. I'd like to welcome you all today, especially our first time visitors. Uh, I want you to know first of all that you are loved by the God that we've come to worship this morning and also that you are loved by the folks that are sitting right around here here at FBC. Um, This is, um, I also want to encourage you too if you're a first time visitor. Uh, I didn't realize that Jim was going to do this because the bulletin makes it quite clear that you've got a guest speaker today. I was going to say, hey, if you don't like the preaching today, that's all right. Come back next week. The senior pastor will be back here. Um, But uh, he and his wife, Pat, are taking some well-deserved time off. Uh, Well-deserved. And uh, in fact, they're on cruise right now. Uh, It's not the kind of cruise. It says it's cruise where the boat's actually painted white and different colors, and you get to lay back and enjoy the time. Not the kind of cruise where it's gray and you do all the work. I know a lot of us are familiar with that. That's not the kind of cruise that... uh, that we're talking about here. So, you know, a cynic once said that uh, preaching is, is the art of learning how to talk in somebody else's sleep. Um, and I'm hoping that today you won't be sleeping. Um, you know, those folks that don't come to church, they already, you know, they suspect what we already know. And that's that, you know, it's probably more uncomfortable to fall asleep in bed than it is in one of these chairs or a pew. But I, I think today, we're, you're, I hope that you won't be doing that. Now, if you're here from class 318, you said, but I don't think they're here. They, have a, they had a uh, uh, 318 seal, new SEAL class, uh, had Hell Week this week. Um, and Robert, you told me a couple of the guys that have been coming uh, actually made it through, so praise God. They would actually have the, uh, I would say, you know, guys, you can fall asleep if you're here this morning. Um, that, would be, that would be just fine. But I, I, I don't think we will. It's a, it's a challenging message, and it wasn't one that I was... Um, originally going to uh, talk about, uh, something that God put on my heart a little bit later. Uh, Dennis, Robert, you guys might know about this. It's kind of weird. I was going to go one direction, and he said go the other direction. So it is, um, it is a little bit challenging, and I, and I hope that you'll uh, uh, be encouraged by it, but also challenged in your faith. So uh, before we start, I would like to go ahead and just open us in prayer. So Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, help us understand this word. That you would, by the power of your spirit, take this word and bring it to our minds and our hearts and lives. That you would bring the story of the rich young man to life and 
in our lives. We know, God, that we are rich people. And so we pray that you would help us to put aside our preconceived ideas, put aside our opinions and our thoughts, and help us to hear your thoughts and your ways by your grace. We pray that you will help us not only to hear them, but to apply them and to put them in practice into our lives. We pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. So if you would go ahead and open uh, your Bibles or, or turn them on. Last week, your, Paul was here, Paul DeRocher, and he says he doesn't like turning on Bibles. He says you can't mark in, up in them. I didn't get a chance to show my Bible that I turn on. It's got all sorts of marks in it. So you can either turn it on, open it up, please, to Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, there should be one there in front of the chair for you all. Um, and we'll be going and reading through uh, verses 17 through 31. These verses may be familiar to some of you. Uh, this is the story of the rich young ruler. And it's a historical narrative. It's not a parable. These verses describe an actual encounter with a man uh, that he had, a man that had an encounter with Jesus Christ and his disciples. Uh, it's also recorded in Matthew and Luke. So you've got three parallel accounts of this story. But we'll be in Mark this morning. As you're turning there... Let me give you some context for the verses. Um, Jesus has completed his ministry in Galilee at this point. He's leaving the town of Capernaum that had really become the home station, the, home, the headquarters, if you will, for most of his public ministry. Uh, and he's getting ready to begin a roughly 100-mile journey to the ancient city of Jerusalem where he'll, in a few days, or not too long from now, um, be welcomed triumphantly by people shouting, "'Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord,' Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. Then, of course, he'll be seized a few days later by the Jewish authorities, tried, tortured, and executed, all according to God's redemptive plan. Okay, so hopefully you all there. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, and I'll begin reading. As he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? For all things are, uh, Jesus then looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or, or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. 
Okay, so before I get into this passage, I want to I, I address two common errors um, that we want to be careful to avoid. And these two errors are a good example of what we call proof texting. And proof texting is when we, we take a passage of scripture, oftentimes out of context, and without examining it in light of other scriptures, make a point that's not always theologically sound. So the first error is to universalize this passage. And oftentimes, we'll take this passage and say that what Jesus says to the rich man applies to every follower of Christ throughout the ages. So when Jesus tells the rich man to go sell everything and give it to the poor in verse 21, then that means he's telling every person, you, me, everyone who's ever believed in Christ, that what they need to do is go and sell everything and give to the poor. That's universalizing this text. And there's a few reasons why we know that this, this can't be correct. It's, it's, it's an error interpretation. For starters, let's, let's start with the disciples themselves. From what we can discern from the rest of the New Testament, at least a couple of these guys still had homes that provided a place for them to stay. In fact, in John chapter 20, uh, you've got um, Peter and John, are, they're going to the tomb and to visit the tomb, uh, and Jesus is not there. And where do they go afterwards? They go back to their houses, their homes. They hadn't sold their everything yet. Um, they were to give all, and we'll talk about that later, but they hadn't sold all their possessions. There are other places in the New Testament where we f- see followers of Christ who have not literally done that, who have not literally sold all that they have. So this passage is not teaching us that if you're a follower of, cross, uh, of Christ, I'm sorry, you can no longer have possessions or private property. That's not what it's teaching. This is not a universal command to sell everything you have and give to the poor. So at this point, we go, whew, glad, glad that's not a requirement. Uh, but, uh, but not so fast, because the second error of interpretation, the other side of the proof-texting coin, if you will, is to minimize the passage. And the tendency with this error is to say, well, Jesus isn't telling everybody to go sell that, uh, that all that they have and give to the poor. That's only for a few people, so that's definitely not me. Not, that's, that's not us. Somebody else. So what's very important to realize, for us to realize, that this is a very serious passage that teaches us that Jesus does, in fact, tell some of his disciples to go sell everything they have and give it to the poor. So the reality is, if you're a follower of Christ, it's possible that Jesus would say these exact words to you. Now we're not feeling so relieved. So here's something we need to keep in mind. We need to acknowledge that we are indeed a rich people. And I think that should go without saying when I'm standing here in Coronado, California. Uh, now, now, many of us here would not think of ourselves as rich, and, and uh, some indeed may be going through financial trouble. That's not to discount that. But let's put it in perspective. We have water, food, plumbing, roofs over our heads, cars to drive, cell phones, and I think we all have to have Medicare now. So we, that, puts us in the, that puts us all in the category of very rich Uh, when it compares to the rest of the world. I know many of us who have traveled overseas, or if you've traveled just across the border here, you know exactly what I'm talking about, uh, what I'm talking about. So when we minimize scripture, we have a tendency to tell ourselves what this passage really means is such and such. Often when we do this, we do it because we want to conform the passage to fit with our version of Christianity and or accommodate our way of life. This is a dangerous tendency and it is an unbiblical way to study the Bible. Because what we're supposed to do is to conform our lives to what the Word of God says, not the other way around. So we need to be careful to avoid both of these errors in interpretation. So as we look at the passage today, we'll avoid these errors, not universalizing the text, but not minimizing it either. 
We'll examine what Jesus is teaching us, not only in the context of these verses, but we'll look at other verses in the Bible as well. So, good, that's already behind me. There we have it. So I don't have a study guide. I had a day job this week and a couple other things to do, so I was luckily able to put together a, a real quick, that's where we're going. So you're going to hear me talk about some passages and scriptures. If you can't get there, if you can't turn around, just write that down and, and maybe go back and do, you know, dig a little deeper after this message is over. So uh, I'm just going to concentrate on four. There is so much in this passage, but I'm going to concentrate on these four. So truth number one, Jesus' calls to sal- uh, call, Jesus's call to salvation demands total surrender. Now think about this for a second. Jesus' call in our life demands total surrender. We'll talk about how this truth applies to our rich young ruler friend throughout our message today, but to reinforce this truth, let's examine it in light of some of the other scriptures. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 25, Jesus is again teaching his disciples not long before this very encounter with a rich man, and he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life and lose it will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus tells the Pharisees in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven that the greatest of the commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Paul puts it this way. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Our salvation demands total surrender to Christ. Now, this, this, this just isn't counter-cultural. This is so counter-contemporary Christianity. I think these days, among some of the new evangelism techniques and the ways of doing church, church I think Jesus' way of dealing with this man would be judged a failure. He's, think about it. He's got, he let the guy get away. He's, he's got this guy. He's obviously a seeker, right? He's got a lot of money and influence. Imagine what, all the good this guy could do. He could... Buy, help buy the new building, the parking lot we don't have. I don't know where we'd put it, but we don't have one. New center, you know, think of all he could do. He could maybe write a few books. You know, if Jesus only knew what we knew today, he'd know that the best way to evangelize someone is to cater to their felt needs. Repackage the message so that it's more contemporary and relevant. You certainly don't ask someone to sell all they have and give it to the poor. Today we tell this man, live your best life now. Live your best life now. Now, all you need to do is, quote, quote, develop an image of success, health, abundance, joy, peace, happiness, and nothing on earth will be able to hold those things from you, end quote. And I am quoting from the best-selling book entitled Your Best Life Now, authored by a pastor of the largest Protestant church congregation in America. Your best life now. Really? This is it? I mean, John MacArthur said it this way, that ought to be a dead giveaway because if this is your best life now, then you're probably on your way to hell. So, no, Jesus isn't interested in trying to make this man feel better about himself or cater to some felt need. He cuts right through to his heart and he says, renounce everything if you want to follow me. He goes right to the core of this man's heart and in doing so, teaches us another truth. And that truth is truth number two. Salvation is never a matter of external reformation. It's a matter of internal transformation. So if you look back in verse 17, we read that the man asked Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus do? 
he says to him, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud on your father and mother. And then the, the man responds by saying, teacher, I've done all these things. I've, I mean, I, I, you've asked, that's what I'm doing. And, 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 and he says in another parallel account in Matthew, he says, what else, do I, what else do I lack? And again, this is where Jesus goes right to his heart and he says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Now, this is really unusual. I want you to think about this with me. Somebody has just come up to Jesus saying, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus' response is, obey these commands, sell everything you have, and give to the poor. So is Jesus promoting a salvation or works, salvation based on works? Is that what he's promoting? How do I inherit, obey these commands, sell everything you have? And that's the, the, the answer Jesus gives him. So is he promoting salvation by works? And absolutely not. And I want to show you why. This is what Jesus is doing all throughout the Gospels. He's taking the commands of God that were understood by so many Jews from the Old Testament, and he's taking them to a whole other level that they never could have imagined. A great example is Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. After he tells his audience that he has not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but has come to fulfill them, he starts to expound upon many of the laws by saying this, you have heard it said. And he goes and he goes, you, say, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. He goes through a whole and you shall not wear, swear uh, false witness, divorce wife. You've had said it, but I say this. You have heard it said, but I have said this. And he takes it to another level. And, <clears throat> and as you get to the end, you see that that other, he says, you guys were okay. If you did all these, you thought you were okay in God's sight, but we're taking it to another level here. And that level is pretty high. If you look all the way down at verse 548, he says these words, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So what Jesus is saying, you have to be perfect in order to inherit the life, inherit eternal life. And you have to be perfect. And obviously that's not possible. And what Jesus is doing when he is showing this rich young man, just as he shows all kinds of other folks throughout the Gospels, that they cannot merit eternal life because they can't be perfect. And that's the standard. That's why in John chapter 6, he had a crowd of Jewish people who came up and, and, to say, and, 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 up and they asked him, what must we do uh, to do the work God requires? So what, what works do we need to do, Jesus, that God requires? And so they're listening for him to, to give the answer, kind of like E.F. Hutton. And he says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. To believe in the one he sent. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying very clearly, salvation is never a matter of external reformation. Instead, salvation is a matter of internal transformation we've got to believe christ we've got to believe in christ we've got to trust in christ because we can't be perfect we can't obey all these things we need christ now bring that back to chapter 10 to the rich man when jesus says go sell all you have and give it to the poor is jesus saying that if this man does this he'll earn salvation no no and we need to make sure we understand this Jesus knows the man's heart. He's the only one who can, and he knows how to get to it. He knows that if this man, a man of great wealth, were to actually part with it and give his money to the poor, that that would be a natural outflow of him believing 
trusting and truly following Jesus, it would be an obvious picture of the fact that his heart had truly been changed, an internal transformation, one that causes his deeds to reflect his faith. So if you could turn for a second, if you have time, or just think about it, write it down. These are important verses. James chapter 2, verse 14. Starting there and going to 17. James chapter 2, verse 14. This is what James, how James puts it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the needs for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, it's still faith, and that's okay, that's all you really need. No, that's not what he says, actually. He says that kind of faith, anyone remember, is dead. So again, back to our example of Mark 10. And we'll hammer this home. There's a huge difference, a huge difference between caring for the poor, being necessary evidence of our salvation, and caring for the poor in order to earn salvation. Big difference, and we have to understand that. Because what we're seeing in Scripture here is that caring for the poor, for this man to go out and sell everything he has to give to the poor, for you or me, any of us, to make extravagant gifts to the poor, and to let go of, this, of these things in this life would not be done to earn salvation but would be done as an expression of the salvation that we have received it would clearly show that there has been an internal transformation in us that is now playing out in an external manifestation of us giving to the poor you see the relationship there it's an internal transformation and it leads to external manifestation something happens in our hearts god changes our hearts we begin to care for what he cares about and the result of that, the overflow of that, is that we begin to obey him and follow him. If our lives are a reflection of our hearts, and if there's been an internal transformation, it will show itself in the way we live. Then if our lives do not reflect the character of Christ, then that means there's a heart issue at work. It's not an issue that needs more external reformations. We don't need to go out and say, okay, i got to go do this, i got to do that, more of this. We need a changed heart. And what we're seeing as we, walk, uh, as we talk about caring for the poor is that we're is that we're indulging ourselves as, as we do this and ignoring the poor, then there is perhaps a heart problem, a major heart problem that should cause us to ask, is Christ in my heart? And if he is in my heart, then why has this not been expressed in my life? There's a disconnect here. It doesn't mean that I need to go out and start caring for the poor in order to earn salvation. It means that I serve the poor precisely because I have salvation. I love, you love, we love because he first loved us. And some of you might think it's a little crazy to even ask that question. Well, is Christ in your heart and do you need a heart transformation? And so let's leave caring for the poor for a second. Let's think about this illustration. Imagine somebody, and maybe, again, somebody, maybe it's us, maybe we're struggling, I don't know. But imagine somebody who claims that Christ is in their heart, but they live a sexually immoral lifestyle a grossly immoral lifestyle when it comes to sexuality. I mean, they're living in direct disobedience to all that Scripture talks about when it comes to sexuality and purity. And year after year, they're doing this, but they claim Christ is in them. But when shown in the Word where this is not honoring to Christ, they still continue in this activity, and there's no sign, this is big, there's no sign of contrition or conviction or repentance. Okay, I know we all struggle, struggle but this is an important key 
note here in this example, no sign, been told, no sign of any contrition, conviction, or repentance. They just continually disobey Christ. Doesn't seem to matter to them at all. If that's the case, and they continue in that month after month and year after year, is there at least reason to question whether or not Christ is in this person's heart? Maybe our own. Now, we need to be careful, and I want to be very careful. I'm not saying that I'm the judge of whether or not Christ is in their heart. I'm not saying that you're the judge of whether Christ is in their heart. But there's at least one reason to warn them, at least a reason to warn them. And in fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 9 through 10, it says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. That should be a warning. 1 John 2, 3 and 6, these are powerful words. If anyone says that you know God, but you deliberately disobey his commands, the truth is not in you, and you are a liar. This is what the Bible says. And so we should say to this person, is Christ really in you? And if he is, we need to urge this person to repent and turn back to him. And if he's not, we would want to urge this person to pray for Christ to change his heart for the first time in his life. Now, this might seem pretty clear-cut, and this example was a pretty obvious area of sin, so we said, yeah, that's obvious. Okay, that's obvious. Well, so let's take it back to this whole caring for the poor thing again. What about people who day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year, indulge in more and more stuff, and they ignore the poor? Or if they don't ignore them, they just throw them scraps. They continue in that. Is there a reason to wonder if, if there's a heart problem there? Absolutely there is. If you look at John, 1 John three seventeen. It says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him how can the love of god be in him it's a rhetorical question first john saying that how can the heart of god be in him if he's ignoring his brother in need and this is where we're seeing that if our lifestyles are about indulging ourselves and ignoring the poor in the world then there's a reason to look inside our hearts and the most fundamental question we need to ask is is christ here and if he is here, if he's in our hearts, then what needs to happen in my life is for Christ to change me and to transform me so that my life looks different. Not so that I can earn salvation. I would not tell that person struggling with, with sexual sin or immorality, hey, you've got to get yourself right first before getting to go into, before God. That would be horrible, unbiblical advice. I would say go to Christ and ask Christ to change your heart so that you don't desire these things anymore so that you desire him. Similarly, don't go out and start caring for the poor so that you can earn salvation. Think about it. If that's what salvation was really based upon, how much would you have to give? How much is enough? When have I finally made it? Um, that's not what Scripture is teaching. Scripture is teaching us to go to Christ, repent and run to Christ and ask him to change your heart, change your mind about how you spend and how you live so that you can live in a way that expresses Christ in you. And only Christ can do this. This is why when we look at this difficult test, text, the last thing I want anyone to take away from this morning is I've got to go out and do more. I've got to go, I've got more stuff I've got to go work on. I've got to go do this and go do that. That misses the point because that's looking at external reformation. What I want us to do is pray that God will show us areas, you and me both. I told you this was not easy to prepare, believe me. I want them to show areas in our life that we, where it doesn't add up with what the life of Christ looks like. So we see these areas of disconnect, and we walk out of here today, and we say, I see this area of disconnect, and I want Christ. I want Christ more. I want more of Christ, and I need Christ to change my heart. I need Christ.
Christ to change me. We're walking out of here today not beat down and burdened in despair because we've got so much more to do, but we're going to walk out of here driven to Christ because we want and we need more of Christ every day in our lives. And how do we do that? We go to Christ and we spend time with him, not just here on Sunday mornings. That's key. That's absolutely key. We spend concentrated time with Christ during the week. We're asking Christ about these things and how they apply to our lives. I believe he's honored in doing that. It's not the easy way. The easy way is what this guy was looking for. Just let me do a few things and I'm good to go. And again, we do, we do good works because of him who has done a good work in us. So that leads us to truth number three. Jesus is not merely a good teacher. He's a sovereign Lord. When he transformed hearts on a day-by-day basis, week-by-week basis, the only place we can find that is going to Christ. That's the key here for the rich young man. There is a fundamental flaw in his perception of Christ. Jesus is not merely a respectable teacher. Listen how he addresses him there in verse 17. Good teacher, he asked. And in verse 20, teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. This man respected Jesus' thoughts. He respected Jesus' opinions. A guy sent me this, this last week, a colleague of mine sent me something that's out of the blue. And it said, uh, you know, many of us are willing to serve God as his advisors. I thought that was pretty interesting, kind of related there. But look what Jesus, look what Jesus says, answers back to the man. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except who? God. God alone. It seems almost as if Jesus is hinting here. This guy has absolutely no clue who he's talking to. He has no idea of the gravity of the conversation that he is having at, all this, at this moment because he's looking at Jesus as a respected teacher. The problem is that nowhere in Scripture does Jesus look to be a respected teacher. He looks to show himself always as sovereign Lord. You see, the rich man was willing to have Jesus as a teacher to respect, but not to have Jesus as Lord to obey, and there is a big difference. I'm convinced that many people, even lots of people sitting in churches across America today, are more than glad to have Jesus as a respected teacher who will give advice on how to live life, but it's a whole other ballgame when he is sovereign Lord who determines everything in our lives. Christian, you and I have given up the right to determine the direction of our lives. Like Paul, we have become slaves to Christ. He is Lord over everything. He determines everything. Every single bit of our lives, including our finances, that's a radical way to live. And let's be honest, it is not easy to do, especially in this culture. But it is the radical approach. It's Jesus' call to salvation. It involves total surrender. And if you're feeling a little uncomfortable right now, that's okay. Even Christ's disciples seem to be feeling that way. You can look at verses 22 through 25. So I'll pick it up there at 22. Disheartened by the saying, he, <clears throat> the rich young man, uh, went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. You see, even the disciples did not fully grasp the concept that salvation comes from an internal transformation that only God can provide. It's not about all the good things we do. We can never do enough. We can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves righteous before a holy God. That's impossible. That's why the disciples asked the question, the same question perhaps some of you 
have asked or are asking, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them, and he looks at us, and he says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So the ultimate answer to this question is everyone can be saved. It is God's desire that none should perish, that all should come to repentance. You know what I find pretty ironic there? That's Second Peter. Peter, the same guy who just said, who can be saved? By the Holy Spirit ends up writing and telling us that God's desire that none of us should perish, that we should have uh, come to repentance. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and that whomever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. By his grace, we have been saved through faith, and this is not of our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So we can't point to all the good things we do, like this young, rich ruler did. And because of our salvation, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay, last truth. Truth number four, Jesus does not want to strip us of our pleasure. He wants to satisfy us with his treasure. I talked about radical risk. This is radical reward. This is the next picture, and we need to understand this. Jesus does not want to strip us of our pleasure. Instead, he wants to satisfy us with his treasure. So just follow me here. Jesus does not want to strip us of our pleasure. Instead, he wants to satisfy us with his treasure. This is Mark chapter 10. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have what? Treasure in heaven. Jesus is not saying, guys, stop caring about treasure. Stop seeking pleasure. He's not saying that. Instead, he's saying seek true pleasure. Seek true treasure. He's not saying you'll have to, he's not saying you're going to have your best life now. That's not what he's saying. That's what the world says. What he's telling us is that you will have treasure in heaven that lasts for all eternity. So if you were to look in Matthew chapter 13, uh, you've got to see this. It's very interesting. Matthew 13, 44. You should underline this verse in your Bible. I can highlight it in my electronic Bible, and so can you. Matthew chapter 13, 44. Again, we see a tinge of self-serving motivation here, actually, interestingly enough. Jesus is saying, give everything you have to the poor, and as a result, you're going to be better off. Is that good? Not only helps the poor, it's good for you. Treasure in heaven. Materialism is not just sinful, it's just not that smart. I mean, few, if any, financial advisors today would tell you it's a smart idea to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You simply don't find that in today's philosophy or ideology. It doesn't happen in our culture. But you find it all over Scripture. Listen to Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his what? What does it say? In his joy. That's where I circle that or underline. In his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Sell everything you have with joy. How do you do that? How do you put these words into practice with joy? Well, the only way you could really do that is if you recognize the value of the treasure you have. This man gl gl gladly sells what he has because he realizes the value of the treasure he has found. You think his friends might have thought he was a bit nuts? Hey, Festus, dude, what are you doing selling all your stuff for this worthless piece of land over here? It's not a very good idea. And Festus says, well, I kind of got a hunch on this one. A hunch? Really? Well, we think you're crazy, just so you know. And that's exactly what the world says about biblical treasure and advising us on how we should spend our money and time. 
did Festus make the smart move? I don't know if the guy's name was Festus. I just put it in there. Sounded good. Festive Greek. Couldn't go wrong. But absolutely, he made the right move. He understood the value of the treasure he had. So if we are people in this community who are running around after the same stuff this world's running around after and holding on just as tightly to our stuff as the world around us is holding on to it, could it be then that maybe we don't fully understand the value of the treasure we have? If we did, would we not, with joy, give more to those who are in need? And would we not, with joy, give more of our time to comfort those in need? Brothers and sisters, we have treasure. In Christ, we have treasure. We don't have to run around and hold on to things like the rest of the world does. We don't have to because we've got treasure in heaven. The Father gives it to us, and it's worth selling everything. We have found something worth losing everything for. Jesus is not calling us to be miserable. He's calling us to let go of our trinkets because he offers us something of unimaginably greater value. So the question is, which one do we want? Do we want short-term treasure that we can't keep? Houses, cars, gadgets, all the stuff that we have, stuff we get more and more of. We want short-term treasures we can't keep or long-term treasures we cannot lose. Which one do we want? So as I wrap it up, and Micah and the praise team, if you all would come on back up, I would like to think a little bit and reflect on our four truths from today's message and ask ourselves some very <clears throat> tough questions. <clears throat> That's why my voice goes out now, so I don't have to answer, uh, ask them, because I tell you, it's tough when you really think about it, isn't it? First, have we really totally committed ourselves to the lordship of Christ in our lives? What part of our lives do we still need to surrender? Is it our time? Is it our money? Is it our families? These are all very tough questions to ponder if we're really honest with ourselves. Has Christ really changed our hearts? Does the way we live our lives reflect this? Perhaps you are here today and think of Jesus as that good teacher, but have not really seen a, a need to accept him as your Lord and Savior. Let me urge you sincerely to consider surrendering your life to him today. Every moment we have is a gift from God, every breath that we have. And in uh, Luke chapter 12, Jesus does tell a parable of this, of this rich man, and he's sitting around pondering. He's got all these crops, all these new crops that come. He's got all this stuff. And he's like, man, what am I going to do with all the stuff I got? Oh, I got an idea. I'm just going to build some bigger garages and, and barns and bring that stuff in. And yeah, that'll, be, that'll work. And, and then he kind of kicks back, and he says this. He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And what does God say to him? He says, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? There is no time like the present to get right with God. The next breath, let alone the next day, is guaranteed to no one. In 1956, at the age of 28, Jim Elliott and four of his fellow missionaries were speared to death by members of an Ecuadorian tribe known as the Alcas. That was the very tribe that he was trying to reach for Christ. Jim left behind a young wife and child. He wrote that people said he was nuts. And people who will 
do these kind of things that will radically give their lives over to Christ, that's what people will say. They'll say you're crazy. You'll, they'll say that's nuts. They did that in Jim Elliott's life. But Jim knew the value of the treasure he had. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Indeed. Let's pray. Father, I just... I ask you to search my own heart, Father, as, as I struggle with some of these questions. Um, we know we can't be perfect. Father, we... We humbly come before you asking for you to change our lives, not just, to, not just at this moment, Father, but every day. Father, I pray for those in this audience especially who may not know you. Father, I pray that they would make that, that known to somebody so that we could help them understand the, the joy of the new treasure they have in you, Father. Father, I pray also that we just really understand through your word that it is by your spirit, by your grace that we are saved. So grateful, Father, that you have done that in my life and in my kids' lives, my wife's life, Father. Just you're unspeakably gracious and loving. So, Father, I just thank you again for your word. I pray that each one of us would leave today and go out and study it more and get to know you better. Father, thank you for all that you give us. May we be wise stewards of it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have, in fact, um, done, made a commitment to Christ or want to talk to somebody, I want, if, if, I hope I don't mind me all calling you out, but Dennis, could you stand up for a second? Robert, could you stand up? Ryan, Jen, Rachel. I mean, these are people that you can come talk to, I know for sure, and there are others, myself. If you have made that decision today, if there's anyone here that's made that decision, I urge you to come talk to one of us. And congratulations, because I tell you, it's amazing. Your eyes will be wide open. But uh, again, I just thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for sticking with me. Almost made it. I'm sorry for being a little bit over there. But uh, again, thank you. Let's, uh, let's end our uh, time of worship here with uh, one last song and some announcements. Thank you very much.